Hello, my friends. This week, I've got a real treat for you. I'm speaking to the author of Corporate Undertaker, which is a truly roller coaster account of Dominic Aversa's life as a crisis manager. It feels almost unfathomable that he's crammed so much into his life, but he went from sleeping in a barn to owning a bank and a soccer team in the space of just a few years. He sung to the animals in Outer Mongolia, had a guy turn up in his office with a bag full of explosives, been run out of Moscow by the Russian mafia, and lost his eyesight almost completely before making a full recovery. It's astonishing that he's still around to tell the tale, but we're the beneficiaries of his enduring good health because he's here to tell us all about his journey and the life lessons that he's learned as a consequence. Just to whet your appetite a little further before we delve in, let me read to you this synopsis of his book, which made me feel so compelled to interview him. You can find the book on Amazon and details are at the naturalhighclub.com forward slash corporate undertaker and also directly at his website www.corporateundertaker.com. And please, please subscribe to The Natural High from Spotify, iTunes or wherever else you listen to the show. So here's the synopsis, and I hope that, as ever, you enjoy this brilliant convo. Ah, the natural high. I go to work with a police escort. I'm the gatekeeper of the worst behaviour by the world's biggest banks, law firms and corporations. I've overseen the ruin of thousands of companies. 80% of my clients die. I am the corporate undertaker. You don't want to meet me, but many of you will. For more than 25 years, I've been a business owner and corporate crisis manager. I've worked exclusively at the edge of life and law. I've seen it all. Fraud, mobsters, attempted suicides, greed, robbery, murder, incompetence, arrogance, cover-ups, even a coup attempt. My life reads like a crime thriller, but it's all true. Now, are you? Did you start taping already? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just jump straight in and then see what happens, basically. And I always find that more authentic. But um, it's always exciting as well, like you know, just meeting people for the first time. Like I've never spoken to you before. I've done a little bit of research. I've read your book, and um, that, that, which you know is an interesting starting point because I spoke to your lovely wife a few weeks ago uh-huh. and asked her to talk about one of her favorite books. You know, she could have chosen any book she's ever read (laughs) but with very little hesitation she went for the corporate undertaker uh, written by your good self Um, and and sensing potential bias i probed further but she was steadfast that it was indeed a transformational read uh that was completely unscripted she told me after the fact so (laughs) i didn't um yeah well that was very kind of her but i feel honored to have got you on the show because as i said it was such a transformative book for her she's very passionate about it you could tell that she was very genuine when she was talking about the benefits that people have had from reading this book and and certainly that she's had as well um maybe you could start by telling us a bit about your life you know where you hail from where you grew up how you got into the career that brought you to uh, the path of writing a book. Okay, well, I'll try to abbreviate it, else it'll be very long, but um, I'm- I love talkers. They're the lifeblood okay. of the show. Okay, well, here I go. Um, <laughs> I, I, am, I am Canadian. I am from a, ah, a city called Windsor. Maybe you're familiar with that name. Windsor, Ontario. It's just north of Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. I, son of Italian immigrants, Grew up relatively poor, mostly uh, living like a farmer. Uh, my parents had been farmers in Italy. My dad was a mechanic when he came over to Canada. 
And so I spent my time in a garage, split between a garage and shoveling horse manure and butchering animals and growing things. Um, wow. So it was an, I'm grateful for it because I learned so many different skills. I mean, we didn't, when we needed to have something done, we didn't hire someone. We, we just did it ourselves. Uh, so I started making wine at the age of eight and prosciutto, wow. and capicolo, and all of these things. We made, my mom made pasta and bread every week. There's very few things that we actually bought from the store. So I, I started there, and um, I ended up, I went through my undergraduate through Ontario, principally. Uh, to, put, to pay for school, I would go to school for four months, then work four months, and I alternated. What, what were your experiences of Ontario? Is it a good place to live and to grow up? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I mean, it, Windsor is pretty much an industrial town. It was the automotive capital of Canada. But once you get a little bit beyond that, it was very agrarian and we're surrounded by the Great Lakes that are you know, like mini oceans and oh my God. rivers and trees. And what I enjoyed about it, it was a very multicultural, uh, diverse, many Western Europeans in particular after World War II emigrated to Detroit and Windsor because there were so many factories and they needed work. Mm, sure. There was jobs there. So all my neighbors were a blend of, you know, there was, uh, it was Scottish, German, Polish, Jamaican, Chinese. It was it was wonderful uh, because it was so diverse. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Canada's always been sort of famous for that, really, hasn't it? Being so cosmopolitan, you know, welcoming people from so many different backgrounds and countries. Yes, yes, that 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 is very true. And and what what was interesting is uh, America has done that as well. But Americans, uh, you know, it's. Uh, an older country, let's say, and, and more of the, the immigrants that came, um, a lot of them are, are rem far removed from their actual, uh, you know, family history. Whereas in Canada, it, it's a lot of first generation immigrants. But Canada was, um, what I enjoyed about Canada, they had um, protective laws for artists, uh, musicians, uh, writers, and so there was laws that said television content, bookstores, radio had to have at least 30% Canadian content. So you, you, what, they did that or else we would have been swallowed by America. Sure. And, and these voices never would have, you know, risen. So the pop culture in America was as alluring to Canada as to so many other countries around the world then? Sure. You know, most most of the Canadian population lives within 50 miles of the, the American border, and you know there's big commerce. They're 10 times the size of Canada, but what it made for was a lot of interesting music, a lot of and little interesting books and art. Uh, so that that in itself created a lot of diversity. I'm so fascinated by Canada and its opinion of America. Was there no animosity between Canadians and Americans then when you were growing up? Was there no sort of distaste between the countries it, it was a country that was an aspirational place that's how it was presented to you and how it felt you're determined to get me in trouble aren't you <laughs> so um i <laughs> no, it's right. answer, answer whatever you're comfortable to answer i i generally answer honestly because i, no, I, I can't remember historically the historically historically yeah. Well, no, they, they, we were great. Good friends. Most, Good most, friends well, no, mm. actually, most Canadians were happy that there was a border there. And we, we loved 
we loved America because there was more things. You know, there's bigger concerts, more clothing, you know, cheaper alcohol, cheaper gasoline, more choice. More choice. And it was great mm. for, for careers and things. But culturally, we were just different. Canada didn't have get its constitution until 1982. We still have the queen, the queen on our on our on our money, and um, so oh we were God. we were dominion of you know the United Kingdom and the British Empire. It's a, I believe this is my opinion, not a political opinion. That you know there were it, there was Canada wasn't started like America with this great revolution where they you know shut their finger to the king. It was a uh, transitional. So Canadians tend to be a little bit more laid back, a little bit more cerebral. Um, it's, it's, you know, quieter and, um, except when it comes to hockey and so when it comes to hockey, <laughs> it changes entirely, but, um, it's, it's that, that was my youth. I think Canada is, is, um, it's changed be like so many other countries, uh, thanks to the internet and cable and satellite, et cetera. Uh, a lot of those so quickly yeah. things have changed so, so quickly, quickly. everything just sort of devolved and it, you wouldn't it's it's incredible to me how many of my canadian friends and family are so vested in american politics and if you were to ask an american about canadian politics they wouldn't know where to start they don't yeah. have a clue they don't yeah. care so i attribute that to it's the most powerful country in the world still you know arguably isn't it so i suppose i mean it's the same coming from the uk there was always interest in america what's going on in america true 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 so yeah but like you know we're you know sometimes we get along sometimes we don't that's it all depends to the, on the political leadership that's how it goes um but uh, yeah and and the one other big change is the level of violence. Um, you know, the, the Canadians have a lot of guns because, uh, you know, there's, they go hunting and there's a lot, a lot of Canada is very rural and, you know, there's bears and moose, et cetera. Not that moose are, moose can be dangerous, but um, the, generally the, the death toll uh, are from homicides is significantly lower. So imagine growing up in Windsor, Ontario, town of about 30, uh, 350,000 people. And then across 500 meters across the Detroit river, uh, there was a, you know, a bridge and tunnel that took, it could take you there. It was Detroit. And when I was growing up, it was the murder capital of Canada, uh, of America, excuse me. And there, there was roughly, you know, somewhere between 500,000 a million people, but they would have roughly eight, 900 murders a year, whereas Windsor, 500 meters to the other direction, would have one, maybe. So crazy, isn't it? So yeah, crazy. Yeah, you know, so those, those cultural disparities are real. Mm. So, you know. That's pretty mad. Whilst we're on the subject of Canada, because I know we're going to move away from it so quickly, but it's, it's, a, it's a, such a vast country, and I've flown over it a few times when I've come to America, and you only really get an understanding of how ridiculously vast it is and how barren it is. I, I, when I say barren, I don't mean in, a, in a, a negative way at all because it looks absolutely stunning. But as you say, most people live within 100 miles of the borders of America, right? So there is this just great abyss, great unknown north of that. Yeah, you can uh, if you just take Ontario, for example, I lived in Ottawa uh, while I was going to college in 1989, uh, working for the Treasury Board of Canada. And, and 
it, it was 11 hours from Windsor, which was the American border, by car. And if you could go another 20 hours and still not reach the top of the province. Wow. So, and that's just one <laughs> province and in one direction. Um, but yes, it's, it's, a, it's, I have not, I've actually seen more of America. I've been here 25 years. I've been to 40, 43 different states, more of America than I have Canada because it's just far. So my wife and I actually went to visit the Canadian Maritimes uh, last year, and it was great. It was the first time I'd been to Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, Halif yeah, Scotia. Amazing. Very beautiful land, you know, wonderful people. Um, you know, Quebec is, I haven't been there in a while, but it's entirely its own you know, universe, essentially, they have different rules for importing cheese and wine and food. Uh, they have a higher standard than some of the other provinces. Uh, because, really? yeah, well, the French Canadians, they, they, they protect their culture as well. And it's great. So yeah, of course. Yeah. I've heard Whistler is an amazing place. And also uh, Vancouver Island, I'm intrigued by. Well, I've been to Vancouver Island. It's, um, it, it's, it's, it's nice. But I would rather next time go further north, more into nature, uh, because uh, here in Southern California, um, you know, the definition of nature here is a little park uh, <laughs> because they've built uh, houses and highways everywhere um, where, you know, so when we vacation, we try to, you know, get into actual nature. But Vancouver Island's nice. I haven't been to uh, um, Vancouver. Banff, Calgary is another place. Mm -hmm that has a you know beautiful ski resort and ski town. I, I have not been there. I would like to go. But my favorite spot, I love Quebec City. Um, Quebec City, Montreal, and I and all of the maritimes I really enjoyed. I, I just they're 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 each one is has their different culture, but I, I really enjoyed Prince Edward Island. The soil is red. So, uh, there's a lot of I believe it's iron. Oh so they're uh, See there, yes, iron. Um, so the flowers are very colorful. Um, you know, there's and it's just it's an island. There's, so you're surrounded by water and oh beaches my God. And, and vineyards. Proper and, nature, no pollution. No pollution. No industrialization. No, that's oh none, none at all. Uh, I wouldn't. It's definitely one of the more beautiful places in the world. Then you'd suggest. Uh, yes, easily. Uh, I'd say between Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland. Uh, are just too beautiful. Prince Edward Island, I probably wouldn't go during the summertime because they get a tremendous amount of tourists. We went in the fall and it was just great. Oh my God, it sounds so good. I, I'm, I love traveling and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask you a little bit more about Canada, but maybe you could bridge that gap for us now between Canada from studying to where you are now. Well, sure. I So I, I spent... Four and a half years working on my undergrad it took me a little bit longer because I had to work and uh, you know to pay for school. But I ended up in law school. Working class kid. Yeah, I was a working mm. class kid, uh, very much so. I lived out of you know essentially four milk crates and one duffel bag, and uh, wherever I, I had a job at a military academy one semester, and uh, they they had yeah I didn't have a lot of money to spare, so they they said uh, you know there's a room above the barn. Uh, if you want to stay there, and uh, so I stayed there one semester. Wow. Uh, another what a guy. Another another semester. I sp I spent four months on a sofa for you know a hundred bucks a month. 
the, where, what was the weather like in the where, where you were staying in the barn? Was the weather clement? No, it was winter and it was freezing. <laughs> so it, no way. Here you want you. I think one of your questions. What are one of the strangest things I, I've seen? I, I I'm just just remembering the whole scenario. So <laughs> I, the first night. I, How old were you? How old were you at the time? Twenty two. 22 okay great. uh 21 mm -hmm. or 22 one of the so i the first night there i you know i cleaned up this room and um just put a cot in there and and you know a, a clothing rack nothing else no tv no, no there's no cable back then and or internet and i was studying for law school you know and uh in the meantime but i i turned on the heat and within 20 minutes i'm hearing buzzing and it's the walls are are buzzing, not one wall, but all the walls, and then bees oh bees start coming out of the vents. What? <laughs> I realized if I turned oh on the heat, God. I was waking you know thousands of bees that were dormant Jeez. because it was you know very cold, you know many degrees below zero. So my choice was either- They were sort of nesting, hibernating there basically. Right, so uh, my choice was either to freeze <laughs> through the evening <laughs> or be surrounded by bees. <laughs> These are the things Maybe that should have been another one of your books, freeze or bees. Yeah, the, the, that's one of those, these are the things you do when you don't have money. You just, everything's... And dude, when you're 21, you're immortal, aren't you? Right. So you feel like relatively, comparatively speaking, like when I look back to the, my early 20s, I just like stay up all night and then go work all day. And like, you're just like invulnerable. Right. I mean, I was I was uh, very strong and that if I'd never got sick and I did, you didn't care. Wow. You know, now the wind changed. Do you think the lack of luxury in your early life actually set you set you know set you on a really good course in terms of being an sort of upwardly mobile physically active you know not an entitled person didn't expect anything you know had to make it all for yourself of your own back oh, absolutely i, I because in my, in my uh, i'll jump to to the quick you know story when i started to become successful um there was i was young I, my first company i started when i was 23 uh 20 23 24 and uh, let's say I'm about, about 27 when this story occurs. And I was trying to purchase uh, products. Uh, I had a company in Russia, and we'll get to it. But I, I would sit at the, wow. this, this um, board table, and I would distinctly remember these American executives uh, trying to intimidate me with their resumes. And they were trying to... You know, this was uh, still you know tapering over from the '80s. You know, where you know Wall Street, you know, everybody was trying to imitate Wall Street and you know be tough and you know it, it was just stupid. <laughs> they were just so I, the yuppie period. Yeah, it was that it was that type of very greedy and type of environment. So I let these bozos talk, and I looked at them and I said, um. You have very impressive resumes. Obviously, I don't because I'm only 24 or 25, whatever the age was. And uh, I said, but I want you to know something. I know you're trying to intimidate me, but I grew up eating the weeds in my lawn. <laughs> I grew It's true. I grew up eating the weeds in my lawn. So hmm. you're never going to make me afraid of being poor because if I lose everything, I'm going to come to your house and eat your dad, the, the weeds out of your lawn. 
<laughs> and so <laughs> they looked wow. at me like some raging lunatic, but it's the truth. You know, I, when you had to, we would eat, now you, you go to Whole Foods and you'll, you'll pay $5 for a bunch of uh, dandelion greens if you want to eat them. But sure. this yeah. is, that's, that's, that, that imagery and that ability to work with nothing, uh, it, it was, it, it, I, I don't get afraid of going back that to that place because it was fine yeah that's pretty it's just amazing. stuff mm. so so that's that's always in my head whereas you know once you start to make money you don't want to go backwards <laughs> and it's difficult giving up things yeah you like you, you you like the comforts and access uh but you know you never know what life brings do you think that you are necessarily happier when you are financially better off I'm more comfortable, mm. <laughs> so I'm not sleep. I'm not sleeping in, bar in barns <laughs> with bees and no heating. I know, but it's one um, of your life stories. Like the way that you tell it, obviously, <laughs> it's maybe one of your life nadirs, but it's still one of them. It punctuated your life, didn't it? That story. You've remembered right. it all no, these years just, later. <laughs> oh, I don't know which one's worse because I lived in in worse places than that. Wow. So, um, yeah. So. Well, am I happier? I don't think uh, I, it makes me happier. I think, I, and but I also don't subscribe to this notion that you know, if your if money is evil and money is bad, and you mm. know, it's better to be a simple, simple person and lead a simple life. Uh, you know, I think that happy money amplifies. If you're happy when you're poor, when you get money, you'll be happier. If you're miserable when you're broke, you might be more miserable with money. So I, I've, I've always led a very cur curious life. I've just, I'm always going to explore. And I've, I've had a, a tremendous amount of adversity. Um, and I, I don't know, it's just, I've found, found a way to be happy. Mm. I always you know, find, back I always find um, the master of the segue as usual, but I do find in terms of like, you know, the consumer society with it and and you know my consumer desires like i always i always want the things more than the actual enjoyment i get out of it Do you know what i mean it's disproportionate i covet this sure. item and then I, I get it and it's just like you know within a couple of days it just means nothing to me and then and i've really explored that idea examined the idea over more recent years and just thought unless it's really functional unless it's got really unless it's really high functioning I'm simply not interested anymore. I'm trying not to buy clothes anymore I, because I wear 2% of my wardrobe. And, um, and the only thing I'm yes. going to buy moving forward is trainers, I believe, because they're really useful, right? <laughs> well, sure. Well, it's it, here's here's. Thankfully, a, I'm already married, so I'm not trying to date and trying to find dates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is ridiculous, isn't it? How many more clothes I, you have than what you actually need? My my closet is a mausoleum. <laughs> I, I, so it's it's there. It, pay, it pays tribute to my fat years, my yeah. skinny years, and you know the Your in between funky years, the fl the flared corduroys. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have you know, but my wardrobe consists of you know, five sets of black sweatpants and black long sleeve shirts, um, you know, <laughs> because that's what I'm comfortable in. So I spend most like you. It's functional. Right. I think what happens with, with material or experience, it's when you don't have it, you, 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 you're curious what is going on over there. Do you think that's the human condition? Yeah. You want what you haven't got? Sure. Hmm. Yes. Um, I, I'll give you an example. So I started poor and then I, you know, I ended up in law school 
And uh, I was the first person on both sides of my family, actually still the same, same only person uh, to go to law school. Wow. My dad, you know, didn't go to high school. He started working as a mechanic when he was 13. Uh, my mom finished, she dropped out of high school to get married, then went back uh, later years and finished. So while, but while I was in law school, I, I became disillusioned with the practice of law. Mm-hmm. I love the study of law, but the practice was entirely different. So I went looking for something different. In what sense? In what it felt unfair? It felt it felt boring. It didn't stimulate you. It didn't feel like your passion. Yeah, you're just gonna get me in more trouble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you. comfortable. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, but it you didn't feel right for you. Basically, you don't have to go into too much detail if you're not comfortable. It's with. it's perfectly fine. I've expressed my <laughs> views on the practice of law often. It's uh, you know they they chain you to a desk to bill hours, and you're you're you are a servant to others. And, you know, I, I look, once I realized, oh, you're just, you wear, you know, you wear nice clothes, but you, they want you to bill 3,000 or 3,200 hours a year, you know, working 60, 70 hour weeks and paying you almost nothing when you start off. And so to me, coming from a working class background, because I had worked in the factories welding, I'd worked you know, my, with my father in the garage fixing cars and I'd done asphalt construction. I just saw it as a, an hourly job. I said, well, you just get paid by the hour. And so, you know, well, you can either be, uh, pardon my language, but you can either be an asshole doing this or you can be a better dressed asshole and doing that <laughs> and <laughs> so i'm sorry if i offended anybody but that was my my, my global view and uh i didn't want to you know be that so um but you graduated at law school you actually got through was that really hard to do i always imagine that's a pretty pretty sort of weighty academia it was hard getting in it was difficult getting into mm. law school canada only had 16 law schools at the time and, uh, you know, I think a car class size was f- uh, four, I don't know, 150 people. And um, they would have, I don't know, something like 1,500 to 2,000 applications. So getting in was difficult. Uh, and, and that's why I had to study so hard and work hard when in my undergrad. But once you got in, it was a different, it was dif- different. Um, you know, the, a lot of people find it stressful because the Law Society of, of Canada, you know, mandates at the time it was like a C plus average, let's say, you know, 68, if, if, if it matters. And by, by, you know, so everything's on a bell curve, which means in small classes, only two, two or three people are going to get an A. Now, everybody who went into law school was used to getting A's. But once, so once they told me this, it doesn't matter what you do. This is how it will be in every class. So again, I saw the rules and said, no need to try so hard <laughs> because it's <laughs> why it's just going to be there. Mm. So I, I was uh, the first year I was a good student and the second and third year I, I wasn't because I started a business. I just decided I was going to not practice law. So I, I, I barely showed up. Uh, but uh, yes, I did graduate. I, when it came time to study the exams, 
uh, or prepare. But you'd already gone into your professional, the start, you started your career. So what was that? What was the first job? What were you doing? So let me just, so I went to, to University of Manchester uh, in the summer of, 19, of 1991. They had a joint program with the Moscow uh, Institute of Foreign Relations. It's called Megimo. And at, <laughs> I didn't realize until years later that you know there is no foreign relations. It's the KGB, <laughs> so or <it> was. <laughs> it was a nice name, wow. but that's what it was. Mm. And um, I, it was still the Soviet Union. I was there uh, just before the the first coup attempt when they brought the tanks into Red Square, and I was fascinated with this this land, this this environment because what had been told to us the outside world. Uh, is that they were this great superpower, and from a military perspective, they were, uh, but they didn't have anything else. Um, and so I, I loved reading at the time, and I loved reading biographies of uh, you know industrious industrialists like Andrew Carnegie and J.D. Rockefeller. You know, and and I, what I envisioned, I said, well, I I couldn't be in America in 1900, but I can be here, and and what I saw was. Eventually, a middle class will develop, and uh, you know, and c commercialism will, will take place. And I, I, so, what it did is, I put me on equal footing with other companies. Whereas in Canada, I was still viewed as the son of a, an Italian immigrant mechanic. I, you know, there was no country clubs that we belonged to. I, you know, didn't even <laughs> do, didn't know anything about business uh, because we were all laborers. And um, but over there, the only thing that mattered was, can you get me what I need? And I was fortunate enough to partner with two Russians whose fathers were high-ranking party members, red party members. So they had access. They had their, their friends uh, in the Soviet system had authority. They had authority and, 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 but what they didn't know was business. And they were looking for someone that they could trust. And they, they actually approached me. We, we found each other, but I was, I couldn't understand why they wanted to do business with me because I had no money and I had no business experience. I didn't speak Russian. I, I said, what do you, and they said, well, we can, we think we can trust you. Okay. So I started as a broker for them and it was now 1992. Um, and this is the time of those long bread lines. So people were starving and uh, we had explored all kinds of things to buy and sell, uh, you know, everything from aluminum to bee pollen to setting up the first Ford car dealership in Moscow. And ultimately we just, I said, I don't know anything about those things. What I do know is, is a beer, uh, <laughs> meat and cheese. I mean, you know, I was a poor a student for seven years. This is what, what I knew. So I started exporting beer, meat and cheese and uh, then expand it to other products. It was easy, I tried to do it from Canada, uh, but if I found it was easier to do it in America and because of the proximity to Windsor and Michigan, I had easy access to anywhere I wanted to go in the United States. So I, I, we did very well in the food distribution business. Then we started lending money. Uh, we started a finance company. Uh, we started lending money to other businesses. 
and we had very high rates. And uh, eventually, that we we became licensed and owned a small commercial bank in Moscow. And then we had a third division, a third company, which was um, uh, doing commercial real estate development. There was a lack of office space at the time, so we were converting apartments uh, in private residences into office buildings. So that's what I had in Moscow. Did it always feel like these guys were bona fide businessmen that you were working with? Yeah. Uh, this is another one of those questions. <laughs> how, how long did you spend in Moscow? Uh, I, around Russia? I didn't, I didn't want to stay there. I didn't live there because I wanted to finish law school or else my parents would have, would have killed me at the time. Um, yeah, even though I wanted. So you were there on an exchange just for a year, basically. No, no, I was there just in the in the summer and of that '91, and then then from there on in, uh, I went back and forth to Moscow. But it was, I see. What okay. I I my Russian counterparts and most of our employees were in Moscow, and I handled a lot of the North American operations, and then we flew back and forth like you do in business. Um, but were they legitimate? I, look, I I was very naive, and my answer is yes. Ambitious. Ambitious, mm. uh, and um, y you know, uh, yes, they were, and until one of them wasn't. <laughs> so well, we can get to that later on. But um, so I, I, while I was doing that, I did well, and I was, you know, I started the first year, and I, I from uh, by circumstance. I had the opportunity to buy a professional soccer team in Canada. So <laughs> that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Such a wide ranging life. Ah, I told you I was a curious, so, curious, curious George. So I, yeah, yeah right. I'm, I'm 25 years old. I, the, the year before I had, if I had a thousand dollars in the bank, it would have been a miracle. Um, I, yeah, I was right. working part time as a childcare worker and going to law school and then trying to start this business. And, and within a year, I own a team in the Canadian National Soccer League, the Windsor Wheels. They were what called, was the team? They were called the Windsor Wheels. Um, the Windsor Wheels? Yeah. They and, and was it ever high profile, the Canadian uh, Soccer League? Is it still around today or is it sort of merging to MLS or what? It, it, it is. I don't follow it as closely as I used to. It wasn't as high profile because they just had a tough time getting their act together. But neither. Who's the most famous soccer player that's been there? I don't know. I I I I, I, I mean, who? Tell me one soccer. Tell me one famous soccer player that's been there. No, I can't. <laughs> so there is, and I know I'm probably going to offend it. Well, it's probably a long time. Of course. But you know, at the time. I, I love my soccer. So yeah. So the, you know, soccer wasn't popular in America at that time. Sure. So the plan yeah, it was all about ice hockey. Yeah. The 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 well, it was baseball and football. But the plan was to have this team in, in Windsor, and the Canadian market was smaller, but again, very talented players because they immigrated from all over the place. My team had, we had, uh. we had players from uh, Brazil, we had, uh, you know, Argentina, uh, Uganda, <laughs> we had, or excuse me, Cameroon, uh, Croatia, uh, Holland, uh, yeah, we had you know, Malta, Italy, Portugal, so and they were very talented. They weren't, you know, Premier League, uh, you know, status, but they were talented. But the idea was we would have the the base team there in Windsor, in Canada, and then we knew America was going to start Major League Soccer soon. 
And so we bought the rights to a team in Michigan or to have the MLS team in Michigan. At the time, it was called the USISL wow. League, United States Interregional Soccer League. So the idea was to you know, use it as a feeder team to the American team. But, you know, they, it, 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 was, it, it was a grand time. It was, it was I, 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 so when you go back to wanting things, I went from being broke and, and, you know, wearing the same clothes for five years to having a lot of money. And in a short order, at 25, I still haven't graduated. I'm, I'm in the last semester of my law school. And I have, you know, f- secretaries in three different countries. Uh, I have a t- small army of lawyers working for me uh, and accountants working for me, uh, employees in Moscow. And all of a sudden, I'm having, you know, my clothes tailor-made. And, uh, you know, living a, a, a entirely different lifestyle that I had known. And it was, it was an amazing switch. And then, you know, a few years later, as you read, I had to walk away from everything <laughs> and start over. So I went from... Why? Uh, the, it just went south. No, it didn't just go south. It all went south. It didn't go south. It was, yeah. We were doing very well. And the problem was... We were doing too well, and there were some friendly gentlemen in Moscow. Sometimes they're referred to as mobsters. Um, they didn't want us to be in the banking business. And, uh, you know, we, at the time, there was... You, you were on their turf, basically. You, you were on their business turf. Right. They were okay with us doing other mm. business, and they were not with the banking business. And at the time, there was a lot of violence in Moscow, and I was young so I was comfortable I mean I didn't like it but I was fine uh, I was there in 93 when you know they set the parliament building on fire and I'd been shot at a couple times one one time someone tried to stab me but we had security guards everybody had a gun uh, I didn't carry one but it, it, that was the environment but this was an entirely different level of crime and um, you know my partners were adamant about staying in the business and then one day, uh, you know, a fine gentleman showed up with a bag of explosives and uh, a duffel bag filled of explosives and said, you're getting out of the banking business or we're going to blow up your building, kill all your employees, kill your families. Wow. Uh, and then you. So that was enough for me. Oh <laughs> I said, I, un- I understand where you're coming from, sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, but my partners didn't want to. Quit while you're ahead. um, So one of them had his home shot up with a machine gun, and um, he he disappeared. We didn't know. I didn't know. We didn't know if his he had his wife and his two daughters. If they were killed, kidnapped, or what? But he disappeared, and um, we didn't know what to make of it. So the only thing I knew is they're going to come for us next. And I, I, uh, I, I just I said, that's enough. I wanted to be rich. You must have been absolutely shitting yourself. You must have been on the, surely you were on the first plane out of there. I was back in Canada. I'll tell you, I don't know if I talk about this in the book. I had friends in Canada who had been working for the RCMP uh, you know, the equivalent of, let's say, the FBI here in America. And uh, at the time, they were, they were setting up a casino, a first casino in Windsor, 
and uh, they were monitoring people uh, that were coming in, you know, bad actors. And uh, I, I got called one day and said, look, uh, there's these Russians we've been tracking. We hear that, you know, we know you're the guy doing stuff in Russia because there wasn't many people doing it at the time. And they showed, they showed me the pictures mm. and I recognized a couple of them. <laughs> I said, uh oh, uh, you know, because it was one thing to have, you know, criminals and crime way over in Moscow. It was another thing once they came to Canada. And uh, when all this happened, you know, there was there was fine gentlemen that were circling at my house and parking outside my house throughout the evening. And yes, I was, you know, afraid. I said, I've, I just didn't, you know, I didn't, I, I thought they were going to kill my family. And uh, that's what bothered, that, that bothered me more than anything. I didn't mind dying myself, but I didn't want my family to die. Um, and so I just, I literally cleared out all of the bank accounts. We were on the, you know, the eve of, of these massive contracts with, uh, for beer and, and uh, construction. And then, of course, the bank. You know, I, I was I was 28 years old, and I was uh, I owned a third of a of a of a bank. <laughs> I didn't I didn't even know I have money for a bank a couple years earlier, or to put it in the bank. Now, now I was owning. Yeah, right. So we we I just I closed <laughs> everything up, and uh, I had I had other businesses in Canada um, that we, you know mostly real estate development. I had sold my interest in the soccer team because I just couldn't do, you know, I had it for one year and it was great. Took him to the, they hadn't won a game in two years and we took him to the semifinals of the Canadian cup. It was fantastic. It was, it was the most fun I've ever had in business. Didn't make any money, but I, but I had a lot of fun. So then I, I, I closed everything up and I said, okay, I'm a young man. Time to start over. And that's when I came to the United States. Brilliant. So I want you to tell me from that point in a second, but would you say that Russia is, does it sort of live up to the stereotypes of it being sort of a more sort of shady and dodgy place? Or is it just the circles that you happen to find yourself in socially that caused this uproar? Or just say that it is, it does feel like a more dangerous place to you in general than someone like America or Canada? Well, let me give you context. The early 90s, there was only a couple places where the you know businessmen or business people would gather. There wasn't many people. They were all trying to figure out who do I sell to or you know buy my my things, and then it evolved from there. But it was a very small gr- group, you know, uh, con- contextually, you know, compared to the the greater society that was controlling the money and power, et cetera, and and it, it was dangerous. At that time, you could have you could have someone killed for five hundred dollars. So never heard from them again. Never heard anything about them again. Right, gone. Right. So, but then you know, it, it, it like any country that's developing, there was a power struggle, and a handful mm-hmm. a handful of of uh, people that are multi billionaires today won, and yeah. they they controlled all the banks. And they controlled almost everything. So I knew. I look at someone like Roman, you know, Roman Abramovich, for example. I look at yes. him. You, you've obviously heard of him. Sure. And, uh, and he just looks to me like somebody that, you know, he's obviously a very astute businessman, but he looks like somebody to me at the breakdown of the, the old Soviet Union. He just went and took 
what he wanted. So you had to be, you know, something of a cowboy as well as an astute businessman. You had to have balls to survive and to, to win those power struggles in that era. Well, it wasn't just balls. You had to be willing to kill people. I'm not suggesting yeah, that right. he did, but uh, yeah. I'm, 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 you, that's, I, I knew that there were, it's a struggle for power. And if you study history, you know, I had a decision to make. We had, I had a small army of people employed that were all former military. One of my partners had been a relatively high ranking uh, individual in the military uh, prior to the breakup of the Soviet Union. So we had, uh, you know, security that was guarding our goods and ourselves. And if we wanted to, we could have fought back. I didn't want to. If you're going to get hurt in Russia, you're going to get hurt by gangs rather than just man in the street no not at the time at the time anybody would stab you <laughs> so right. you had okay. to you had to be careful now i don't know i have not been back to russia since i had no interest uh in going back it's I'm, i know it's changed significantly so I, i'm assuming it's safer because you know the bad guys got the power and you know contrary to what people you know want to believe you know, the, even even criminals want their kids to go to safe schools and <laughs> they want to live in safe neighborhoods. So yeah, uh, yeah. so, so. You know, even though you even though you know you've you've come from a, a loving family in Canada and and spent time in America and whatever, but like Russia must have seen there must have been times when you were in Russia where you had that scent, that unmistakable scent of fear and adrenaline in your nose. Well. I, again, I was a I was a different bird because I grew up around a lot of very tough people, and uh, right. we, we were always fighting. We were always in a street fight somewhere, and and okay. and I didn't like it, but that's just the way the environment was. And it toughened you up. It did, and so I, I, I don't. I, I was fearless. I, I mean, I wasn't obnoxious and thing. I just. <laughs> Are you fearless now? Oh yeah. Are you fearless today? No, <laughs> no, no. I, 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 it's a funny thing. As you age, you start to realize a lot of things can, can hurt you. I am to a certain degree. So I, I am. I've had enough guns put to my head, enough death threats. Uh, you know, I've taken on big corporations, big banks, unions. Uh, you know, I, I've had enough of that come towards me, where I am. You know, I guess if you want to use the word fearless, I mean, it, to be, what I want to say, what, in, in my 20s, I really didn't understand the consequences of all of the crime. So it's easy to be fearless. As I, yep. you know, yep. saw more in life, then you, you understand, you know, people and things get hurt. And so I'm, more I'm more cautious today because I don't want my wife to get hurt, you know. If I was if I was alone, mm. I might be mm. a little bit different. Uh, being completely candid, yeah. I still, I'm still I still you know I just I don't like injustice and I don't like bullies. And um, so if I can help someone, I generally stick my nose in in their business just to help. Which is very interesting because this this brings us beautifully to the book that you wrote and the job that you went on to do from there, which was as a corporate undertaker, as you <laughs> as you describe it. Um, was that always fair? Was that always a fair job to do? Fair? No. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you said that I, you know, I'd always want to do, I don't like unjust stuff going on, but like, surely there's a load of unjust stuff happening when, when, you know, companies get in 
ripped apart and you know liquidated and stuff right would, would that not be yeah possible? right I have no idea because I'm not from that world, so I'm just asking rather than assuming. Yeah, a lot of people don't know the world, so let me try to explain it. First of all, please. Uh, I never heard the term corporate undertaker. Uh, I think it may have been used in England or Australia, but it's something that I came up with. I had other names for the book, mm. and, and no one, <laughs> they said, it doesn't fit you. And so I said, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Call it, like, I, I, my my philosophy, my approach, my work ethic is to try to save companies and, and, okay. and, 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 or get the most out of them uh, to, so the, the most amount of creditors get their money paid back or jobs are saved. And I have a, a right. very, very holistic look at your view of business. Um, so, mm -hmm. so the, the actual term is uh, either a crisis manager or turnaround or restructuring right. expert or consultant. So you're trying to save. So you're trying to save the company first and foremost. That's and then managing it through its sort of liquidation, if that is the only alternative. Right. So I, I didn't. I didn't like liquidations uh, because mm. it, it, you're just selling off things. Although they play, they do play an important role in trying to get people paid if a business has failed. So what I what I specialized in is struggling companies and sometimes absolutely failing companies uh, trying to fix them. And, and the way it works is, so there's in almost every major bank in America, at least in, in some other countries, there's this department called special assets or workouts or it's where the troubled loans are. And these people are, are probably the most powerful people in the bank because they can determine the fate of, tens of thousands and sometimes millions of people on how they mm -hmm. approach a troubled loan. The, and so the mm -hmm. way it works is a company gets into trouble and the bank basically says, we need you to bring in advisors. Uh, here are people that we trust, hire one of them. And then we'll, you know, we'll talk to you later. <clears throat> so They will do an appraisal and then the bank makes a decision. Well, you go in and it depends on the situation. Most of my clients, I mean, I, at least, you know, let's say 60% of my clients, this is how I would be engaged. Uh, I get a call on a Monday or Tuesday and it would be, <clears throat> hi, I was given your name. Um, we're in trouble. We can't make payroll on Thursday. Can you help us? <laughs> That's how broke they were. You know, there's 400 people can't get paid in two days. And, and, wow. and so I, and I would be parachuted literally into these companies and say, all right, let's figure out how to, you know, get people paid, figure out where the cash is burning, and you have to figure out the entire company, and then figure out a, a plan to fix it, then you have to implement it. And all the while... Does the bank ever look upon it and think, okay, this company could be profitable in future? They have sometimes nice discussions about the future of companies and futures of industries. Generally, that's when the economy is doing well. Mm. But they have one interest get my money back that's it <laughs> so the rest the rest is uh, extra they're they're, they're focused on so getting sometimes getting the money back would mean keeping the company oh keeping the company running yes right? that's usually the best way if you can fix a company and you can okay. service the loan but you know what's happened like in the society the things change 20 years ago, the workout department meant you'd actually work through problems. And then somewhere around the last recession, the Great Recession, uh, starting in 2008, 
the workout became work them out of the bank, you know, get them out. So they Mm -hmm. shut down, you know, like companies were falling out of the sky and, and, and then they were, you know, I, I was racing to try to help save companies, not just me, but others as well. And, uh, but everybody was in a panic and the, the, the people were in workout departments. Many of them didn't have the maturity, uh, and the experience because you need, you need a combination. You have to understand law, business, finance, everything about business. And then you need the maturity to, to deal with the chaos and the fear a lot. It's a Venn diagram of skill sets, which very few people right. have. It, it, most people, the, most people who become chief restructuring officers, like I was, um, start in their fifties, because it takes you know decades wow. to accumulate that experience and that knowledge base. And mm. it really is what I can't stress enough to have that emotional maturity to be able to handle. These are sinking ships. So everybody's fight, fighting yeah. for those assets. Lawsuits are mounted. And a lot of people are passionate about their country, companies as well, right? You're dealing with senior management, and some of them have bootstrapped these companies, and they're absolutely gutted about the idea of liquidating. Right, because they're not, oftentimes they're not just losing that business, they're losing their home, or they're, and they're losing their, their standing mm. in community. A lot of them, you know, many of my clients were very wealthy. I worked with larger companies with revenues north of 50 million. And so when you get into 200, 300 million dollar companies, some of them, I've, I've had clients that have lost more than 100 million dollars. And, and then there is it difficult to derive joy from a job like that? Or are there some like really, you know, great saving moments which make you feel great because you do keep a company going, for example? Uh, <laughs> well, the, the joy comes in, you, you know, Often people didn't even know my name. So I've, I've run large companies with a couple thousand employees in five different states. And because things are moving so fast, they just may know a name. They don't see me. The joy for me comes in when I could save a company or save a, a division uh, of a company because it has this lasting effect. Uh, my, my view of a company is that it's a living entity. And it's not just a corporation or some faceless business. It, it, my, my, a name or a logo. It's all the people right. in it. And, and my belief is, you know, when a business dies, a community dies. And I, I, I try mm. to, I've t- yeah, I take people through this exercise when they tell me, well, I really don't know business. And I ask them, look around your room, whatever room you're in, everything you see from the walls to the carpets, the pen, the desk, chair, whatever it may be, was made by somebody and sold by somebody. When, when a business goes away, all that goes away or gets affected at a minimum. So, so, right. so yeah. you know, that's, that's, I, having started my own business and knowing how difficult it was to start one business, then multiple businesses, then lose it, then have to start again, I have great empathy for any, you know, business manager or business owner, um, because I know how hard it is, and 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 I also know mm. how, how how badly it it sucks, to put it simply, to be broke, to not have a job, not to have money, and and so when when the person and I, I've had to, I've had to fire thousands of people. Um, you know, and sometimes I've had, there's been the last recession, 
there was a couple occasions where the banks called the loan. I couldn't work out a deal, even though I had been friends with them. Um, and they were just unreasonable. And I had to fire 1,500 people all at once. Boom, closed down a 100-year-old company. And I had to do that several times. And it's awful. It's an awful experience. But the joy comes from what you can save and and the lives that you, you can affect so there's companies that i've saved that have been around they're, they're still in existence and that's that's really where the joy came for me the, the rest of it was when you understand that a little bit more about the nuances of crisis management then it can be a like a really creative job as well as you know just being a, a destructive one at times it's just be should be exclusively creative and that's why one of the reasons why i joined it because you have to get in a situation by the time i get there uh, or someone like me gets to the, there in a, in a company that's failing, everybody has already come up with, you know, this is what we need to do to fix the company. They've already looked at the numbers. They've already suggested plans. And for, for whatever reason, it's, it hasn't worked. Uh, and so you, you, you have to have a baseline knowledge of, you know, all the things important to business, finance, accounting, et cetera. But you also have to, be very creative because often there is no money and and no money is going to be invested that's reserved for the larger corporations um you know we hear of these big bailouts today of the airline industry etc billions and billions of dollars well middle market companies half of the economy in america consists of companies under 500 employees small businesses so they're they're not Mm. getting does that not make us completely fucked at this point? Like it must be, you must be looking at, you know, there must be more crisis management to do with American business than ever before by a, a country mile by some stretch, right? Well, I I left working for bigger companies. Um, okay. so, but is that what you're seeing? Oh no, yes. is, that, is that what is that what it's like? Is that the landscape? Yes, no, no, yeah. no, no. The, the bankruptcy. All the all my former colleagues and peers and competitors, they're feasting. Uh, because the, there's so many bankruptcies. The bankruptcy community is actually quite small, and the people who do actual, there's a lot of people who claim to be, you know, turnaround people. You know, if, if some schmo who worked at a big company, you know, went into a division and it was underperforming and he, he or she fixed it, they'll call themselves a turnaround person. That's not a turnaround person. A turnaround person is what I do, and others who work with companies that are literally at death's door. Um, so there's, it's not that big and, uh, there's been so many bankruptcies, uh, that they're going to be busy for years. From your perspective, do you think this is something that we will be able to navigate through based on the, the amount of businesses that are going under now, the amount of real estate is becoming vacant and will be difficult to occupy again. We're going to have to be so creative, aren't we? In order to, to fill these premises and to get people back to work. I mean, how do you see the next the next couple of years going in that respect? Uh, how bad is it? Well, it all depends on how the banks res- decide to treat all the outstanding debt. So the last recession was exacerbated because banks panicked. And the, what 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 most people don't realize when you'll hear things like, "Oh, they never saw it mm. coming. No one knew." Bullshit. We, we knew, <laughs> we knew yeah. there was trouble coming. I, I, my phone started ringing in 2006 and didn't stop wow. till 2012 when I, when I stepped aside. But so what happened 
the, the first thought it was the mortgage crisis and mm-hmm. home ownership crisis. The real, the real debt that banks feared at the time was the, was the corporate debt. So they realized they couldn't, if they continued to liquidate aggressively like they had done with homes and foreclosing, et cetera, they would, you know, right. we'd be left with nothing. So what they did is they went in, corporations had a massive amounts of debt at the time, and they simply did this thing called amend and extend. They amended the loan documents and lowered, you know, whatever payments and extended the payment time ter- terms. So it lowered the financial burden and they wouldn't have to call on these loans. Today, what should happen, so banks, you know, they don't want to be, there's, there's fewer of them today, especially in America. America. There's only a handful that, you know, are, are in very mm. controlling positions. They didn't want to be viewed as, as bad actors and greedy people. So they've, they, 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 you know, hit the pause button on, you know, foreclosures and, you know, liquidations. Um, but obviously there's been these cases where companies cannot make it. So they've had to file bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is principally driven by the creditors. There's this notion that the, the, the people who own a company want to file bankruptcy. Nobody wants to file bankruptcy. What happens is the moment you go into bankruptcy, banks and creditors uh, many times want a bankruptcy because it stops all the litigation and stops all the outstanding debt and freezes the assets. So it allows them greater control to sell those assets and recoup more of their loan. So your question is, what do I see today? This is, it's, it's, it's not pretty in some industries. Other industries are up and going. Worse than the, worse than the last recession with, with the banking crisis? Worse than that economically, do you think? I mean, that's how I imagine it to be much worse. Yes, yes. Because that sort of washed out, but then people began to work their way up. It, it, look, it can get better if, if we get a vaccine or this virus, uh, you know, disappears. But if it doesn't, I, you know, there's there's millions of people. I don't know where they're going to work. What I'm here, what I'm hearing and seeing now, is landlords are starting to get more aggressive. Um, you know, it's, it's human nature. The resources are starting to diminish, so the fights are going to increase. Mm. Now, add that the you know, I don't want to talk about politics. It's just there's enough people talking about it, but add add the the commotion of 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 what's happening in, in you know many major cities across America. Add that destruction and violence to this to the soup of these assets and changing behavior, you know, work patterns, etc. When you mush all that together, it's not pretty. Right. And and so you're but 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 just to understand, there are there's more money in America to invest in businesses than there are businesses. Wow. There's, there's, there's so much money that before all of this happened for many years, the valuations on companies have been increasing dramatically because these big private equity funds had to put their money somewhere. And, you know, they, yes, they invest around the world, but America was generally viewed as a very safe place because of our legal system and, you know, uh, support of capitalism, et cetera. So there was just, you know, good just buckets and buckets of money, but only hands, you know, so many companies to so buy. There's, so so, so America there's, there's, has a lot of cash in reserve, a lot of liquidity uh, to, to, to sort of see this out, you think, and stimulate growth in the economy again. Well, 
I think what's going to happen is like what happens in, in, in whenever there's a calamity, the rich are going to get richer. There's a lot of people with money that are going to buy assets. Sure. They're going to buy the real estate, buy businesses on the cheap. Buyer's market. And uh, yeah, and so, and hopefully it'll come back from there. But for, for so there's the, the, the problem with today is there's these two variables that are very threatening to commerce. And one is the virus, and the second is the prospect and the growing interest towards a more socialist you know driven society mm. so i i i you know i understand communism i worked in soviet union with the russians and i also have worked for the chinese government when you say sorry i'm sorry to interrupt but when you say you understand communism i mean what happens in russia is not really pure communism is it correct yes not today i should have qualified it what used to be communism you know what it used to be and i'm not suggesting that america is going to become communist but there is this tilt in this drive and i think it's born out of you know a lot of reasons i don't know i mean you'll i think it's, born it's, out it's of, strange it's born to out me of greed isn't it it's born out of the fact that we've become so individualistic as people and it's not working it's it's not the world is not thriving and people are not thriving as a consequence of individualism of this extreme individualism. I mean, look, we've I've talked recently about uh, right. the worst performing countries during the coronavirus, Britain and America, and they're, they're you know famously the most individualistic societies in in the world as well as we see it. So there there is this sense of community I feel in America and and Britain is still there on the surface, but it's dissolving, and I think that's eroding huge parts of society and making it yeah you know, we're not thriving as a consequence. Don't you agree? Don't you agree that, like, you know, if we can start thinking about others more and how we might work together to be greater than the sum of our parts rather than less than the sum of our parts, which I think the human population very much is right now, that uh, we could start, you know, moving in the right direction again? Well, you know, m most Americans, and again, I, I hate making generalizations because mm. from, from region to region, people are different. Um, and and they're they're different, and their interests are different. Even the weather affects how they live and work. But in my experience, most Americans are generous, and they 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 are giving. When there's trouble, they show up. Mm. However, you I agree with you that this there has been changes in society. Whether it's been by driven through technology, whether it's uh, you know where the, we, there's always this sense of immediacy, where you know we want things now, give it you know faster, yeah. faster, faster. We and, want lots of things. Yeah, now. and 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 <laughs> so much is visual. But we've never been so unhappy either as a glow as a human race. We've never been so depressed and unhappy. There's got to be a correlation I, to that consumerism I, and the lack of happiness. And the illness as well, because we're not physically active anymore like we used to be. Uh, the, absolutely, the, all those all those things are contributing factors. You know, in many schools across America, there is no you know gym program or recreation program. They got rid of music music programs, and so you know, when to, to me, once you start getting rid of the arts in school, and then you start getting rid of like physical activity. Um, you know, in Canada, in Canada, we grew up in, in, I mean, starting in grade school, they would take us, you know, canoeing and kayaking and all kinds of things. And, you know, it, the, the, wow. the, the person that wasn't physically active was in the, the minority. There might be one or two people. Yeah. Who are, whereas now it's just common. 
And so the, the, then you add to the, this world where it's a very visual or, you know, there's internet, cable, social media, everything where things are being pushed upon everyone. Be this beautiful and you can make a lot of money. Be this way and you can make a lot of money. And it's just money, 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 money. Not that that and that's the metric, isn't it? That seems yeah. to be the metric. I mean, what about corporations, for example? You've worked with loads of corporations right. around the world, and, and it seems to me that corporations rule the world these days. I mean, is that healthy in itself? Politicians have so much less power these days, corporations really effectively rule the world, as far as I can see. And are they leading by are they setting a good example? I mean, how many visionary, um, industrial and corporate leaders? do you know and do you really think of as real visionaries how many leaders are there where the metric the main metric is not profit margin <laughs> none here's what happens in most larger corporations they will use all the words things like you're in our thoughts and prayers we care about yeah, we care about the environment we care about diversity and then they shut the door and mm. the, what happens is, <laughs> I use the expression, you know, everybody wants new kitchen cabinets uh, because they're all focused on their bonus. And it's human nature. If you tell me, if I do X, Y, Z, I can make $10,000 or $100,000, whatever. The numbers for some of the large corporations are significant where they're making ridiculous amounts of money. Um, that's what they're going to focus on. And mm. if you if you... I write about and talk about people. I was at, how did you, how do you motivate people? Well, by the time I get into a lot of companies, the companies have been failing for, for years and pe the good employees have left. The ones that remain are frustrated and angry and confused. And so in, and, and the, or it's hard to get them to change. And so I had studied a lot of different things and tried different approaches. I came back to this very simple uh, notion: what gets paid gets done. <laughs> Just watching you be. If you want the, if you want a very clean floor in your restaurant, tie employees' pay to the the the, the, the clean floor. You know, if you, the floor is clean, you get paid. If, if it doesn't, so behavior. Yeah. We're, so if you if we want. Um, you know, a, a corporation to uh, donate X amount of dollars to the community or plant certain amount of trees or, you know, reduce its footprint, whatever we, we want, you have to tie the, the, the executive's compensation to that. You know? Yeah, but the problem seems to be that we don't want to try and restore the planet, for example, our environment to a place which is not polluted. I mean, we have better technology than we've ever had. Right. We've got more pollution than we've ever had. So it's not a priority, is it, to improve our quality of life in terms of environmental and planetary issues? It's just not, it's just not top of the corporations or individuals' priorities. Yeah, I mean, there's there's smaller companies trying to do it, and I think there's some technology companies are trying. But the, the real issue is with these, the you know, let's say the Fortune 50 companies. And again, I don't I, please if anyone's listening to this, don't call me. I don't hate them. I'm just illustrating something. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there's big corporations. For example, the, our, the farming communities and our, our the food supply that comes to us, the quality of food that comes to us is horrible. It's garbage. Mm. Like and the mm. way, way we, we treat animals that we're going to eat is horrible. 
and and, and that and that's it that and so that those are big corporations that are affecting the waterways the airways uh you know the the air the water and 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 the way we live and so yeah they're what they're they won't change uh until there's someone who either puts a gun figuratively to their head and says this is what Mm. you have to do so Mm. for example Here's here's a simple thing, we, you know. You talk about stuff that we we bring in. It is infuriating to me that only two percent, of all the the uh, shipping containers that come into America are inspected. Two percent. Wow. So we wow. don't know. There is no quality control. There is no criminal control. What mm. what is there? So disease control. Disease control, etc. So if you leave room for criminal behavior or bad corporate behavior, they will take advantage. They will use it, you know, lead in paints to use a simple example. They will mislabel fish, you know, and they will, you know, for example, so true. shrimp. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about getting away with doing the wrong thing. Right. And, and they, and, and I, I've been in many meetings where uh, executives will say, well, I'm not breaking the law. Because they're 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 mm. they're driven by you know they found some loophole in the law, or they've you know their 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 team of lawyers have crafted uh, you know the language so that this gray area. Well, it's, you know we really don't understand the law. And I look at them and say, but do you have a moral compass somewhere in you? You know, do you, do you need the federal government or other people to tell you what is right? You know, do you think that yeah. we should use you know, radiator fluid in our ice cream, you know, you like, yeah. what, for example, I mean, there, it's, you know. It's so true. I wonder how many people out there genuinely believe that big companies go to massive lengths to keep us healthy, whether they really care about it that much. No, no. And all these guys, like <laughs> they even, care about the margin. No, they care about the margin. Yeah. The, I mean, okay. I've run a couple shoe companies. Okay. <laughs> when do you sleep, man? No, I was just a part of my work. Those are your clients. I, I don't sleep. Uh, and that's, that's why I had to stop doing a lot of this work. Um, it, it, so you look at these, uh, these companies that sell athletic clothing mm. and athletic shoes. They're, they're, you think that they're selling you stuff to make you, you know, go be healthier. Meanwhile, if, if, you, if people knew what actually went into the soles of, oh and I'm not going to say any brand, or go, the, the chemicals involved in making some of those products, and, and how filthy and dirty they are and polluting the world. I mean, it's happening in China and Vietnam and Korea, and then we import them here, and we, mm. you know, we put them on people. And and they're 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 it's disgusting. It's horrible. It takes thousands it's, of liters of water to make one T-shirt. Thousands of liters. It's so yeah, ridiculous. but it's if, for for me, it's really the the, the chemicals. You know, I yeah. when in if we talk about environment, so you know, a couple of years ago, uh, it was Greta Thunberg, and you know, younger mm-hmm. she was inspiring younger kids to to uh, you know to, to reach out to political leaders and corporate leaders to address environmental issues. And I suggested to them, I said, look, don't wait on them. Don't wait on politicians. Don't wait on corporations to make those changes. Do it now. Start planting trees. W- buy fewer clothing. 
have have a days or hours in your home where you, you just unplug, mm. just unplug. Convince your mom and dad to sell one car or move into a smaller home. Turn your lawn into a garden. Yeah, would it actually it would improve everybody's quality of life over time, wouldn't it? And they would be getting over that addiction of consumerism, which is what I see it as really. It's an addiction. Yeah, you can't sit here. What I what I was sharing, you know, well, we want you know clear your earth, and it's you big bad corporations and you imbecile politicians, and then they go out shopping and load up their their closets. <laughs> With clothing, no, it's so true, and, and they spend eighteen but, hours a day on on using electrical devices that are powered with these 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 you know things that are killing the environment. I could not agree. I could not agree more. <laughs> it's so easy. It's so easy to blame the man. It's so easy to blame other people. You've got to take responsibility for yourself and the way that you live first and foremost. That's the only thing that you can really control, isn't it? In the in the short term, and so many of us have so much room for improvement. Now I know me for one. I watched a brilliant documentary over the last few days called Hypernormalization. I would highly recommend. It. It's about three hours long, but you can watch it in chunks. And it's all about how corporations have largely superseded politics now, have all the power, have ridiculously intrusive mining, you know, data mining systems, and um, which we all know about. Um, and there's some really interesting stuff in there as well about how Putin teamed up with this guy called Sarkov. Uh, yeah. Back in you know, a while, you know, some time ago, and this guy Sarkov was actually from the theatre. He was he was a, he was brought up and trained as a theatre actor, and he started basically just to spread misinformation. This is what they, this is according to the show. He right. started spreading misinformation, so people became less sure about what was going on in the world. The public became less sure about what was happening. A case in point is Russia's involvement in Syria, where they flew loads of fighter bombers over the top of Syria when the civil war was going on in Syria. Nobody really knew, knew where, why they were there. And even the Russian people didn't know why they were there. And it's creating this confusion on purpose so that um, you, you sort of spread panic amongst your people. And that, so they'd rather cling to what they know rather than opting for the unknown. And, you know, you could, you can, I'm sure there's some correlation there with America as well now, what Donald Trump's doing. And, you know, I think a lot of them, I, 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 I'd be flabbergasted if Donald Trump got back into power, but I speak to people about it and it's that feeling of like, oh, we don't really know what, you know, some people don't know what, how bad Biden's going to be, you know, so maybe we should just stick with Donald Trump. And it's just like, what the hell is going on? Don't, don't count them out. And I try to tell, explain to people, you, what I, and, and here's what I'll share with you. It's not one person. You remember that when you, when people speak of, of individuals, I try to encourage them to remember there's 63 million people who voted for Donald Trump and there was 66 million that voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, and, and it'll probably pan out about the same as my guess. I don't know because it's 60 days away. If I do, do, did though, I'd make a lot of money. I don't think anyone knows. And so right. they, they, What's that's my guess. I think it's going to be about what it was last time. So yeah, I think I right. I, okay. And you think and you think Donald will, Donald will stay in power? It's, it's, it, listen, it's it's. I don't know. And I haven't even asked you what your political leanings are yet. But I personally hope it's not going to be the case. But I've got this horrible fear. I wouldn't be. Don't be afraid. What you what what the only thing to be afraid of is instability in the country. So whether if if, if mm, no, it's about what the country represents as well. You know, America has got such an unhealthy perception around the world now. America used to be such an aspirational place. People liked the culture. People liked the place. Of course, they've always had military incursions. Yeah. 
dubious military incursions going back for, for long periods of time. But, you know, they've been seen as a place which is creative and pioneering in many ways. And we need somebody that is going to shine a positive light on America, like somebody that's going to generate some kind of systemic change about how things are done. Don't you think? Um, here's here's what, I'll, what I'll share with you. Um, I'm independent. So, and as if you, if you notice in the way I speak, I'll, you know, jump on one side of the fence, then the other side of the fence and then go back and forth. Hmm. Well, no, I'm not necessarily devil's advocate. It's just generally how I carry myself. Remember, I I spent most of my life trying to mitigate fights, Uh, you know, I, I, and, 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 and bring, and then literally bring people together. There were times I I had to instigate fights to get why I didn't instigate. I had to respond to to something, but I spent most of my, my time trying to bring people together, try to show them a better path. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote mm-hmm. that, this book and there's a few more to come. But so that's, that's where my thinking's at. But uh, before, sure. I, I've heard this from my Canadian friends and some other friends in other countries, how can America is viewed. And here's what I will share with you. Most Americans don't care. They don't care because they spent... The, the 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 big part of the country, I think the average income for American household income is maybe around fifty thousand. I see a lot of Americans on the street really caring about the social injustices. That, yeah, that, right that's now. different. So I, I can't completely. No, no, well, hold on. Just there's it's two different things. You asked me about the perception around the world, and then what's happening mm. in turn. So the, 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 there mm. there is now. I'm someone who actually you know I I. I worked with these industries that were closed up and shipped out out of country. And there's a huge part of the country that were left to try to figure things out and were abandoned. Mm-hmm. And this is where, where Donald Trump came in and said, no, no, we're going to put America first. And they embraced it. They said, we want someone to fight for us. I'm not saying right or wrong, but this is, this is the dynamic. If, and, and so the second mm-hmm. part is, so they don't, I mean, they don't care. They really don't care how they're, they're viewed. They just want a job. They're trying to survive. Mo- mm. 60% of, of all Americans don't have more than $500 in savings. So, you know, w- 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 th- mm. that influences a great deal of your thinking of, of, how, you're, how, you're, of, of how you're trying to live. So when someone comes along and says, I'm yep. going to put you first, they say, great. So that's one element. The second, the second part about unhappiness or division if you go back and look at elections in American history, they're always pretty much close, split. A land a landslide right. is, is 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 you know if someone wins by ten percent or more, and that's you know so that happened with Barack Obama. You know he was he was a pivotal figure in in American history. I think it happened. I'm not sure if it happened with Reagan. It happened with Richard Nixon. You know, he had a landslide and then, you know, uh, got impeached. Uh, but but mm. if you look at, you see, the, the pro- one of the biggest problems from my perspective here is there's only two political parties. So by definition, you're going to yeah. split the country always. And what's happened now... And you have to make a choice, which is pretty much a cho- probably a choice that you're not completely happy with, but it's like the lesser of two evils. Yeah, there is the independent party as well, right? Yeah, but they're insignificant. You know, they, they don't have a chance right, at, yeah. at developing. Yeah. So what's from my perspective, what I've seen happen here is politics has now become a sport. And, and so there's, mm. there's hatred. 
there's there's hatred like you're just rooting for the other side to fail or your side to win and it's just stupid outright yeah it's stupid because mm. it's literally so, like so true you're, you're you know you're it's not constructive yeah well it's like you're at a football match in england right? you're like or in italy whatever it is and and it's it's so people have you know are out of control and and but that division when when people say well it's been created now. It hasn't. It's been there. Barack Obama's, you know, last election, he won by three percent, right? And 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 I think mm-hmm. this, this, it's always going to be split along these lines until there's someone yeah. who comes. That's Barack Obama was the first African American. He was unique in his in his presentation, and so people, you know, came out and said, you know, this is it. We're going to get behind this. I don't think. Here's my bigger concern. I don't. I really don't care who wins. I think because I'm. I'm looking at the, the what happens beyond that. If we don't resolve issues with the virus, if we don't resolve uh, issues with getting people back to work, and it's going to make it much more difficult to calm people down on social injustice. This these these issues of social injustice they can be resolved. I mean, the, there has to be a point. Neither party is saying right now, can we just sit down? You know, there should be leaders from the African-American community, uh, from political communities, the police association, get into a room and talk and say, what do we need? What can we fix today? You know the pro. Yes. That's that's my perspective because remember, again, I agree. I remember, agree. I agree with what you're saying about that part. But yeah, yeah. Where I'm coming from is I didn't have time. I didn't have the luxury of of always complaining, complaining, complaining. So there is legitimate concern and legitimate reason f- to express the injustices. What I don't like is destruction. You know what I don't and I don't think anyone. Yeah, does. I, and. I, I think it's a really good point you're making and it's I've lots I've listened lots recently to people talking about how it, feelings are so polemic at this point in time there's so much outrage it's so emotional on both sides you know on the right and the left that nothing's really getting done nobody's finding any middle ground and so I think it's really important to to understand both sides of the argument for sure I think my problem with I think one of my main problems with Donald Trump apart from Apart from his scurrilous behavior and the fact that I don't think he's a good, he sets a good example as a human being, is that he, if he gets another term, he will have a huge say, he will have huge influence in the decisions on who is in the Supreme Court moving forward. And that's a decision which has like, you know, shockwaves for the next 20, 30 years in terms of the system of government in America. And that, for me, is truly worrying. And you talked about Barack Obama and it being a a pivotal point in American history. Well, it would only have been pivotal if the good work that he started was carried on. But he did eight years, and now look where we're at. There's all this crazy nationalist sentiment going on. There's fights in the street and tear gas and people getting shot. I mean, it's crazy. He is not engendering a civilized and inspired society. I don't know. I I, I can't I, I I can't put everything on his shoulders. I understand. No, I, a lot a lot of these these the you know the violence was there. It was it's been, it's been there for a long time. Americans have a lot of guns and they want to use them. And and whether the Democrat <laughs> or Republican, and 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 they're 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 loud and they don't want to be told what to do. That's how the country was founded. And uh, you know, again, I'm not saying right or wrong, but it's respecting the culture. 
you know, the respect, the, the, it's very, very easy to, 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 to crap on America. Uh, it, and, but I try to encourage people again, look at the good part because there's more good people well, than yeah, there is I'm not bad talking about people. The people so there, much. Every, everyone, no, but I, 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 there's, there's more in common than people would have us believe. Oh yeah, 100%. But what I'm saying is the, the people that are good and the people that have the commonality, again, the vast majority, they're the ones voting for these people. So I've, I have a different view of things because I've done a lot of work with politicians and, you know, people are always asking me to take a stand and they get very confused. They don't know if I'm liberal, if I'm conservative, yeah. if I'm Republican. And <laughs> it depends on the issue. Mm -hmm. It depends on the issue. I don't have an affiliate. My, my, the total sum, uh, the sum total of my political contributions in my entire life is $100. <laughs> I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave, a, I gave a, a lieutenant governor of Ohio, uh, who I think was a Republican, I'm not sure, a hundred bucks for his reelection because he helped get me a $2 million loan for a company I was trying to save. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was nothing illegal. He just I put, he expedited the process wow. and helped save that company. So that's it. Mm. So I come from the views I take. I'm trying to, I, again, the, 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 my, my global view is the con how connected we all are. And, you know, I, I really don't care who wins. The bigger issue for me is you, if, if who's it's not going to take one person to calm everyone down. You, you have to have, if so, if Trump loses, are his supporters going to, you know, hit the streets with guns? Mm. Are they going to start rebelling against, you know, the, the green new deal or the any, you know, alleged socialist behavior. Mm. If, if, if Trump, if, if Biden or if Trump wins, are the you know people going to continue protesting? You know, th that's to me those are the bigger issues because you know they're going to keep us living in fear. So it, it's it's going to take more people. Do you, Somebody, think, do you think Donald is encouraging connectedness? The connectedness that you think is so important, and I agree, is so important. I don't think he's a great communicator. Hmm. Uh, I I, do, I don't think he's a great communicator, but I do think that he is actually trying to put america first mm. which will in by by definition will upset a lot of people and 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 so that's where it's at but understand it's in my mind i have yet to meet a, a, a political party or, or corporate leaders that was benevolent mm. You know, so they understand there's so much money. And did you see how much money the both parties raised in the month of August when allegedly the economy is broke and there's 15 million unemployed? Joe Biden and Democrats raised $300 million wow. in one month. Wow. And and I think the, the Republicans and Trump raised, I don't know, it was close, like $180 million. Wow. That's one month. <laughs> so you have two, two, two organizations, you know, I think when, when Hillary last election and but where, but they're getting their money from the people in power in America who want those particular, their, their own interests served. Right. I mean, that's where the money's coming from. It's coming. Most from, money's coming from corporations. And it's no, but a lot of it's coming from citizens as well. So, but you had mm -hmm. the last election, I think either side raised about 800 million each and the same one wow. when, when Obama and Romney ran. So when there's, there's over a billion dollars or close to $2 billion 
being spent in political races, it's, it's very hard for me to say one side is benevolent, the other side is evil. It's wrong. Mm. It's wrong for either party. Listen, you, we're all kind of stupid and we're stuck together. So you better, you know, the, 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 I, I, it's difficult to make whole, you know, whole systemic changes. Uh, yeah. The one, how I try to save companies that are failing, I start in one corner. It's like, like cleaning a dirty room. You, you know, you walk, walk in and go, oh my God, it's a mess. What am I going to do? Well, start in one mm. corner. So this is why I'm suggesting, you know, with the police, with, you know, African-American relations, get in the room. Leaders, stop, stop tweeting, stop, stop, you know, fighting one another. Get in a room and say, we're not leaving until we have concrete action. It doesn't have to, you don't have to rewrite the Constitution. Just what are, the, leave with five things that can be done that will calm people down. Okay, that's just one thing. So, you know, yeah, again, actionable differences that can be made. Right. So, you know, it can be agreed on moving towards some kind of more unity anyway than we've got at the moment. Yeah. So you'll look, you'll, as you've seen, I'm not going to dump on either Biden or Trump and I'm not going to deify either one. So I don't it's just politicians are mostly, in my view, useless. So <laughs> I don't care what party they belong to. Uh, no one's listening to this this conversation, right? <laughs> so uh, I may have to move back to Canada. So thank God we're not publishing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that, you know that's one way. I'm 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 assuring that no one will hit me up for money. <laughs> dude, dude, yeah, I, it's a fascinating view. But I think that lots of people are just prepared to fall into line behind somebody with just the Twitterified version of what they stand for. I think it's important to read around the subject. I think it's important to you know discuss and debate the differences that people have and the politicians have because I completely agree with you one hundred percent. It's about constructive change rather than just slagging each other off because they're pissed off because of all these outrages that are going on at the moment. Well, it's it's polarities. It's politically the environment. Like one sided, we have to. And we're not save, getting anywhere. Yeah, we have to save the trees and we have to save the birds. And the other side is we have to be independent with our, you know, oil. And well, just calm down. Is there is there a middle ground somewhere? You know, the, yeah. there has to yeah. be a middle. There's a middle ground for everything. And this is what, why I would like to see two bigger things. Again, I don't care about who's at top because they'll eventually be out and there's a lot of enough checks and balances to keep everyone in line. What I would like to see is a third party, you know, for you know people like me, there's, there's millions of them that are independent. They're, you know, very liberal on certain issues and then very conservative on other issues. That's one thing. Mm. Second thing I would love to actually see, you know, you grew up in England, I think, <laughs> yep. you know, I'm not sure if the BBC was like this, but I know in Canada, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, they had the channels were, you know, no commercials. Yeah, same in Canada. They're independent. So the journalists and the people brought on the shows, they couldn't be bought or influenced, you know, swayed in one direction or the other. So you had longer conversations thoughtful conversations uh which doesn't happen now mm. you, today if you want to find out the truth you know you have to scan five different news sites <laughs> and then say hmm 
you, you know, where is that? Where is the truth? Yeah, because so true. they're all they're all bullshitting me. Yeah, you need trusted you know? sources. And, Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And we don't we don't have them. We mm. don't we don't. So it's it's too for me. It's too easy to say they're wrong, they're right, they're wrong, they're right. There, there again. There's and there's too much money behind it. People mm. forget. Once upon a time, I maybe I'm naive, but I th I thought that news was uh, brought to us. We, you know, here's what's right. happening in the world. We're going to tell you. Today, I believe news is sold. It's, it's curated for clicks these and days, and it's way too polarized. There and there and again, I don't care who the president is. You know, it's it's we'll put someone in charge. The other side is going to trash them. And that, that's where it has to stop. They have to change. Like in Canada, the, 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 not saying that they're perfect mm. because they have their own set of problems, but you can't, someone, you know, a billionaire can't show up and, and buy their way into, you know, the prime minister's role. There's a cap of how much money you can put in. So you actually have to put it, you have to put in the work to actually yeah, go get so people to support your position and you know work your mm. way up the ladder so here you know they always talk about campaign finance reform they you know until you until you remove all that money from the equation and until you get some actual neutral parties truly neutral parties um involved in 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 the conversations or reporting of information it's gonna be it's just again it's like you're watching a soccer match you know uh, and and all the time that's that's that to me is what's mm. really taking things apart. So you know, uh, yes, Trump is he put the flag front and center and said America first, and you know half the country or half the the, the people who voted said Yahoo, and then because they didn't like you know Barack Obama's approach to you know put help, you know build alliances around the world, they said oh, that's just stupid. We're broke. We don't want to do that. So it, it's it, it, to me, it's all noise. It's just it's noise, mm -hmm. and and I think that there is what I'm trying to share with people is yeah. Just remember, we're human beings, and not political parties. And if people work within their own community first, if they were if they work within their own community, that will spread. Don't worry so much about national phenomena. Uh, just take care of your community and 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 lead by example so portland you know portland was a great city i we actually thought of moving there five six years ago we were looking for homes and it's it's, it's disheartening it's destroyed you know or parts of it are destroyed yeah i love portland too it's it's, it's you look and say what are you doing you know who's who's, who's good you know the politicians aren't going to clean up the mess we have to clean it up and we're going to have to pay for it too so, you know, it's okay. I understand, you know, people are in pain and, and they want change and, but get to it already. <laughs> don't, don't, wait, don't wait for other people. It's not, they're not, they're not coming. You know, they're not. We've got to take responsibility for ourselves 100%. Well, you know, the thing like for you. But it's all also nice to have somebody, you know, a figurehead that gives you hope. Somebody like Barack Obama, for example, made some missteps, of course. Hands were tied politically, I'm sure. But, you know, overall, somebody that seemed like he had integrity and was working for the greater good. 
So it gave people hope. I don't think there is a lot of hope now. They look at, you know, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. I mean, if Kamala Harris eventually takes over, that gives people hope, I believe. And I think... Here's what I can share with you, How, you know, because I'm still in touch and working with people across the country. There's, there's tens of millions of people who believe Donald Trump gives them hope. So that's, yeah, I just, it's, Again, it's, 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 you know, you don't have to, you don't have to agree with it, but I'm just trying to share with people. It's not that there, those one, you know, that one guy or that one woman. I'm, it's, I'm it's, so it's, pleased you said it. And it's so true. And it's something I've been ruminating on lots this week in particular about, you know, giving space to the other side because it makes you, gives you a more complete understanding of your own opinions, you know? Well, you know, if you, if you, uh, a really good book and documentary is called The Fog of War. And it was written and, or, and narrated by Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense, I think a couple of times, maybe, I think in the Kennedy administration, and then there's certainly um, Johnson. But he talked about the mistakes that they made in Vietnam. And it's, it's an absolute fantastic you know documentary or read and you know one of the things he talks about is the importance of understanding the other side and he said america never truly understood the vietnamese and their resolve that they that these are people that had been ruled by by other cultures and they had enough of it and they weren't going to give in you and so they dropped i forget the actual number of bombs but you know they had Operation Rolling Thunder, and they were, you know, so many bombs and so many different te techniques were, were were you know deployed to to beat down and eradicate these people, and it, they got nowhere. But it, had they had they known from the beginning, if they had tried to understand the other side better, they wouldn't have even started. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this yeah. is what I'm saying. It's important, and I, I'll give you a, an example. There's so many companies that I've walked into that are troubled and there's executives in the room and they'll say, it's a piece of garbage, shut it down. Right. They, they, they've done a cursory review of the financials and the situation and they'll say, ah, it's in the automotive industry, it's crap, shut it down. Mm -hmm. And then someone like me looks and says, wait a minute, this $50 million of revenue or $100 million of revenue. Do you know how many people out there would die for one million of revenue? Hmm. Sure, surely not all of it is crap, or not all hmm. of it needs to be thrown away. There's there has to be parts of it that are good, so let's get rid of the bad and keep the good. But that takes m more effort, and it takes a greater consideration and, and greater involvement. If 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 politicians want to understand Americans and different, you have to, you have to go spend time with the other side. You have to go truly understand, rather than 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 categorize them as one way. Um, you know, if for, for example, Canadians, not all of them, but many, tend to look at uh, Trump supporters as dumb and racist. So I sh I, I share with them simply said, okay, Justin Trudeau, when he first won the prime minister's role, he, uh, seven and a half million people voted for him. Those seven and a half million people were considered smart and progressive. Mm. But these 63 million people are considered dumb and racist. Mm. 
Seven and a half million are are right. Seven and a half Mm. or 63 million are wrong. How can that be? Right. So, you know, take time to try to understand people, situations, communities, because you can't paint them all with one brush. And I think that's part of the problem. Again, when I say it's a sport, everyone's wearing a, you know, one color or the other color. Yeah, and I think it is a tremendously complex situation, but we are being told to simplify things into a vote for one guy or another, basically. We all have all these crazy ideas, some of which we believe and some we don't. It's difficult. difficult. Well, and this is why I suggest start within your own communities. Start with, lead by by example. If you Mm. think that they're, you know, if your police force is, uh, you know, not doing what they're supposed to, start there if corporations are polluting or you know doing some start there just start mm. there one in your little corner of the world and you'll see what happens it it, it spreads it, you know just deal with stuff in the micro and let it all blossom yeah you you know there's um because if you try to take you know the whole entity of america or, or any country for example it's too much you know like imagine me trying to give an opinion on, on, you know, British politics and the dynamics between Scotland, England, Wales, you know, England. <laughs> <laughs> who the fuck knows where to start? <laughs> right. Uh, the corporate undertaker. I think it's a fantastic name. It's a very alluring uh, book title. And also when I look at the synopsis, particularly on the back, I love it. It says I go to work with a police escort. I'm the gatekeeper of the worst behavior by the world's biggest banks, law firms, and corporations. I've overseen the ruin of thousands of companies. 80% of my clients die. I am, I, actually, I'd, I'd refute that and say 100% of your clients will eventually die. <laughs> but that's just being facetious. I am the corporate undertaker. You don't want to meet me, but many of you will. I love it. It's brilliant. Why did you write the book? I wanted to, <laughs> I wrote it during a good economy. And, uh, yeah. Everyone, the pub, publishing houses told me, you know, Dominic, it's it, nobody's going to want to read this book. It's you know, things are great. And I said, look, if I'm a student, student of history, by definition, <laughs> a crisis is something you don't expect. I didn't know COVID was going to happen, and you know, so, but yeah, but course, but is, I yeah. knew something would happen. And even if it wasn't a great or something like the affecting the entire world or the entire country that, you know, stuff happens to individuals. So I grew tired over the past decade, let's say everywhere on, yeah. on TV, or, you know, newspapers, periodicals, website, et cetera, were, you know, either stock market is roaring, you know, stories about the stock market and then Silicon Valley. Oh, someone just became a new billionaire. And then it, it, it appeared that, you know, there were the, the stories were always positive and glowing. And it was like people winning the lottery, you know, and getting rich. And I just looked and said, where is the where's the real conversation or the conversation about real phenomena in small businesses? What happens when someone gets mm-hmm. sick and they own a business? What happens when they go on or try to go on vacation? they still have to pay bills. They don't get a paycheck. If they get ill or someone in their family, their business is affected. And there's just lots of, of, you know, awkward, complicated, sometimes criminal 
stuff that happens within a company that we don't talk about because it's uncomfortable. And so, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, and I start the book, I, I lay out the stats. I mean, half of the American economy is run by small businesses. And the majority of those people didn't mm. go to business school. They may be a baker, you know, uh, or, or whomever, painter. They, they're, they just like their craft. They felt that they could do that better, right. but they don't have that business training. So when trouble comes, sure. a lot of them get steamrolled. I was on a, on a call earlier mm. this morning that will be distributed to about 2,000 people. Uh, in this particular industry, the, the people were, were, are being completely overrun by what's happening, and they're having to liquidate businesses uh, that have been established for 30 years. Yeah. So I, I wanted to give people wow. – uh, uh, it started off with just giving them lessons and tools, uh, simple things, or I mean, brief things. They're not simple for, for yeah. when trouble came. I wanted a handbook for trouble right. because what happens is when a company gets in trouble, they generally they will go to their accountant, their a lawyer or a friend, and they'll give some advice but they really are not crisis managers or, or restructuring it's people. specific advice. Well, enough, because yeah. the cri once a company gets into a crisis and deep trouble, the dynamics change rapidly and the players change rapidly. And what happens, you know, right. people, they don't even know someone like me exists. And if they do, they wouldn't be able to afford me. And so, you know, they, they, they end up, you know, people will lose their homes. They'll lose their entire savings, et cetera. So I, I wanted to put together a book that said, the, the, you know, a book of ugly, complicated, horrible things that can happen, but show people, look, you, this is how you can get around it or get through it. And what I did is I originally started with, the, there's 50 lessons in the book. Most of those lessons come from my personal journals. When I started my first company, as I mentioned, I didn't know anything. Like I kept making a lot of mistakes and I, mm. I, I didn't know who to turn to. And so I just wrote myself notes, uh, you know, November, 1992, don't do this again. <laughs> and so I, I, I would look at it and say, I just going to create this book. So I just, you know, don't screw up again. Or if I did something right, you know, do more of this. And, um, well, I did that for 25 years and I, I had, you know, th three, three journals filled that I shared with nobody. Uh, I just kept wow. them to myself and it was really my wife who said, why don't you put this stuff to get down? And I, I, I really wasn't interested um, in revisiting, you know, a lot of the bad things that I had gone through in my life. So anyway, I, I did mm -hmm. it. And then I told client stories. Those stories are dramatic um, you know, some of them, you know, they're awful, uh, but some are very inspiring. And then I told, because I wanted people to understand who I was and where I come from, uh, as you can see, I don't make, you know, conversations, you know, on, on politics or business very easy. <laughs> you know, I just, I, and it's because I, I, I tend to have a, I try to have a, a holistic view on whatever I approach. Mm. So I wanted people to know that I had not gone to business school and I wasn't just some Ivy league consultant that I had started at the bottom where most people have and worked through. And even though I've been very successful at times, 
Um, I, I, you know, I had a lot of adversity that I had overcome. So I put in, mm. I, the book became much more personal than I originally intended. So it's part business memoir and part, you know, survival handbook. For one of the things, for example, that I included in the book is at the age of 36, I lost most of my eyesight. And wow. that, that changed. I read that bit. Yeah, that, that, that changed how I manage and how I literally see things in the world. And it made me a much more patient person. And I had to rely on my, my, sen my other senses. And uh, so, you know, you, no one plans on going blind. It seems to me like the worst sense that you could possibly lose. When I've thought about it, I, could, I can't imagine a worse sense to lose. I don't know. <laughs> I say I, if I. But I mean, not being able to see it must be so claustrophobic. How did it happen? And were you completely? Did you lose your sight completely? What no. Percentage? So I. It happened within a matter of weeks, maybe a month. In I lost most of my vision in my left eye. Oh my god! And I, I have an eye disease called keratoconus. Right. And keratoconus it just means a weakening of the cornea. Okay. And so it could be, there could be mild versions of keratoconus and it could be acute. Mine was acute, which meant, you know, I couldn't put the, the curvature had developed a, a, a ledge, let's say. Right. So I couldn't even put a contact lens on it or glasses. Wow. There's nothing you can do to fix it. So at the time, you know, it, it, it hit me hard, but you can function with one eye. Um, it was hard at first because I'd get vertigo because the brain, the eyes work in sequence. So the brain was thinking, you know, this eye should be working. So I had to wear an eye patch for, you know, a handful of years uh, or else I was just, you know, tripping over myself. Wow. And I had to explain to people, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm just can't see very well. Yeah. Um, but um, at the time I consulted with four different ophthalmologists and each one of them told me that I would go eventually go completely blind. Wow. And uh, so that, changed my life uh, significantly i uh, i spent months going through you know the whole host of emotions of anger and you know frustration fear and then one day i just said enough and i said okay if i'm going to go blind i'm going to go see the world uh, even though i had traveled i'm going to go see things because i want to you know remember them mm -hmm. and uh, i i literally took my laptop and threw it in the garbage quit my firm <laughs> and uh within a matter of a couple of weeks i was on a plane on new year's eve to outer mongolia and uh so i went to live uh with some nomads and i took a course course sorry <laughs> i took some training right. from uh an eagle hunter to learn how to you know, hunt with, with eagles. So it's a, like a falconry program uh, or like falconry, but. Uh, Why did you eagles. decide to do that? I, I was Sounds reading an article. I, I was reading an article one day and uh, I, I couldn't understand how it was 2002 and people were way on the other side of the world living very differently than me. Yeah, I love it. And to get back to our, our, our earlier conversation about, I had been striving to, to have more and better and better and more, right? Mm. Uh, and yet these people for thousands of years were living in a yurt in a mud hut and uh, happy. 
Amazing. or appeared happy. Mm. And, and I wanted to go find out why. Like, why, why don't you want like what I want and what most of the world wants? Mm. And that was part of it. And then the second part was just fascinated by the notion of how do you train an eagle? Wow. That there was, you know, I just didn't know. Again, it was just a, it started a curiosity. And I spent a few years, you know, uh, doing extended retreats and monasteries, spend more time learning, you know, wine making and cheese making and cooking. Amazing. And I, That's incredible. Spent, what did you find out spent, about why they're so happy? Harmony. They, 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 they live in harmony with nature and with one another. They sing throughout the day. They sing to the animals that are around them. Beautiful. They have, they have, uh, I think, something like 400 different ways to describe the color of a horse and oh the way a horse God. is. So beautiful. Uh, they, they, and, and they're just, you know, they, um, they're loving and caring. And I asked them, you know, don't you want to go someplace else? Aren't you curious? And they answered, no. No, we're happy here. The land of no fences. Where I was in particular was uh, somewhere, it was probably about 50 miles from the Kazakhstan border and about 90 miles from the Siberian border. So I was in the very remote area. Well, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's mostly desert. Uh, but uh, Did it change the way you lived your life after that? Did it? Was it like a really profound effect that it had on you being with those people? Yeah, a lot of you know. I hope you hear it in my my discourse of other things. Is the harmony, and right. and trying to seeing the interconnectedness of things. Not that I didn't see it before, but I really just started to appreciate it a little bit more. And mm. um, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could take away the sides completely and just all realize that we are actually all the same? Well, one of the things that they yes, one of the things that they were fascinated about. They, they, they struggled to understand why we had uh, like, you know, fences and our, and, and individual property, Love you know, it. that they, 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 because they didn't have that. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll give you, this is similar to political, but so they told me the, the next nearest town was a town called Ogi. And uh, I think there was about, I don't know, 20,000 people, maybe more there. It was about five hours away from where I was. So that was one stop. And I was, I walked around the town at, you know, 30 below zero. Uh, we saw a synagogue, I saw a church and a mosque, small, but they were brightly painted. And, to, and I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, I didn't realize that, you know, these different religions were here. Um, and then they told me a story after the Soviet Union collapsed and, you know, Mongolia opened up and, or in China let them open up and whomever. The, all the various religions and, and uh, their missionaries, you know, went there. And uh, so they started, they went back in their history and said, yes, my grandmother or great grandmother was, uh, you know, uh, Catholic or mine was uh, Muslim, whatever it be. Hmm. And they started attending these different institutions. Within short order, they all started fighting with each other. Because each one was, you know, their God was telling them something different. Mm. And, and they, you know, they noticed tensions and division happening amongst otherwise 
people who work collectively. You know, they have to work together because the the elements, the cold, it could drop to 80 below zero in in a, in, in a heartbeat. And if you don't work together, you're going to lose your animals. You're going to lose your mm-hmm. life. That's just one scenario. So yeah, they they they, they started fighting as soon as religion and and, and this uh, you know identification with the religion was introduced. So they threw them out. <laughs> they took all the missionaries, uh, every every respected you know religion. They said, "Get out!" They left the buildings there, and they said to people, "If you want to go, you can go on your own, but we're not we're done with this." Wow. So it was if people were still respected if they wanted to worship a certain idea, right? And it's it, it's 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 similar to what we were discussing about politics becoming a sport. They're making a religion, you know, a sport. You know, mm. you're on that team. I'm on this team. And it's all mm. bunk. You know, it's all bullshit. We're on the same team. We're heading. Try try looking at that part um, and and see how you can come together. But the whole process of yeah, I, my vision eventually. I was afraid to get uh, cornea transplants. And even though they're more common today, I was hesitant because I could see light and color Hmm. uh, when it would come through. And I had terrible headaches from the eye strain. But, you know, once they do the cornea transplant, they cut the top of your eye off, to put it crudely. And they they sew someone else's cornea on you, right. and you you it's a transplant. It's a different organ, and it could be rejected. You know your in, chances of getting injured increase significantly. So I I didn't the whole notion of going completely black in my world was was frightening. Oh to me. man! So, so I, I I I yeah I held off and I waited and I waited and years passed. Um, and my vision stabilized, they kept diminishing in the right eye and I adapted. So I, I, I started paying attention more to people's words. What I could see, I would, you know, have to stare at someone or something if I wanted to pay attention. And a lot of the stories that you read about me and the big companies I was running in the last recession, I, I was doing it and I was legally blind. So I, I could walk into a boardroom. I, if you were standing or sitting three feet more than three feet away from me, I couldn't see your face. Wow! But I didn't tell. I didn't tell anybody. Wow! <laughs> I eventually told my staff and my colleagues because some days were bad when I was living in Manhattan. I'd get vertigo quite a bit, right. and uh, I'd have to explain to them that I wasn't drunk. You know, I said <laughs> just like a, a eye disease. But it it was okay because it made me. I, I thank God for you know uh, zooming on your in your computer mm-hmm. and enlarging items. I, I started memorizing things more, and okay. I I paid attention. I just would close my eyes and listen to people talk. Wow! And 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 so I grew as a person, and I became an infinitely better manager by listening to the pain in people's voices. And, you know, the, this is what's happening today and why I tell people, where do you start? Start by listening. Right. You know, stop, stop trying to sell your position. Yeah. Just listen. Just listen and, and go get to the root of problems. So, um, yeah, by, by uh, 2014, I couldn't see anything. Uh, and so I went to, I was scheduled to get a double cornea transplant. 
and uh, a miracle happened. I found a transplant specialist in Beverly Hills, California, and um, he said, uh, we don't have to do transplants. I have this new technique, and I do two procedures in this eye, one procedure in this eye, and uh, we should be good to go. <laughs> and I, wow. I said, I'm sorry, I don't believe you, because where have you been? And I just didn't believe him. It was completely fortuitous that that I that I found him mm. out of all the different I could have gone to a lot of different people. And yeah, right. Anyways, I, I I didn't believe him and I went home and then uh, I drank a few martinis and the next morning I got up and said, Okay, I'm doing this. And I called him and I said, You have to do it this week because if not I'll I'll change my mind. <laughs> because and just, and just to, to understand where I'm coming from, I, you know, again, my world was blurry, <clears throat> and I couldn't I couldn't see my face in the mirror. Um, it, but I was afraid of it going black. Completely gone. Right? Yeah. So so anyway, I had the procedures, and a day after the the surgeries, eighty percent of my vision was restored. What was the technique? The technology called just so that people who might have similar problems. Um, can find out about it. Oh, I think one of them is called linking. Okay. I'll actually I'll give a promo to the doctor. Nice. It's doctor. His last name is Boxer. B O X E R. Wachler. Separate mm -hmm. word. W A C H L E R. Brilliant man. Wonderful humanitarian. Right. If you want to talk to a person about leading and working within your community, this guy will buy, he has thousands of people come see him from all over the world, children, older adults, et cetera. Every year he, he, he buys uh, a entire section out of, you know, uh, Dodger stadium and, and for all his patients, wow. <laughs> he takes everybody to the ballpark, what pays for everything. And that's just one thing that he does. He, He's a philanthropist. That's just one. He's just a benevolent man, brilliant man. So, uh, and I'm internally grateful. That's incredible. Wow. What a story. So much adversity in your life you overcame. Yeah. So that sort of idea is imbued and that's a strand that goes through the book as well, I suppose, your own personal fears and health. Yeah, I go through and talk about, um, you know, the, all, everything on that back covers, well, everything in the book is true. There's only two things that I changed, and I changed them just to move, there's a timeline change. And um, the first, I think one of the first stories is about uh, a suicide that occurred um, on, with one of my clients. And I, I changed that, that's, that's, I took two clients and meshed them into one because I didn't feel comfortable, uh, you know, revealing the, the suicide. Outing. Yeah. Them. I wanted to yeah, respect sure, the family. Cool. Yeah. So I, and, yeah. and I, as you see, I kept most of the names, faces and places are out of the book. Um, you know, I described some really awful behavior of banks and some big corporations, but I, I, it's not a whistleblower book. That's not my style. If whatever beef I had with them, you know, I, I take it out of them that moment, <laughs> not down the road. Mm. And um, yeah, don't hold the grudge. Very healthy way to live. Well, yeah, I just, you know, I dressed it at that time and it wasn't pretty. But um, so I, I talk about, you know, these things. There was one, I think the first time I was chief restructuring officer, the 
the day after I laid off and closed one division, one of the employees killed his uh, wife and his stepson. And the police called me and they said, they called the CEO because as chief instruction officer, I said at top of the CEO and CFO, they called the CEO and I was sitting next to him and said, this is what's happened to double homicide. We think he's a disgruntled employee and we think he's coming for you next. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, you, this is, that's my work environment. We just sat and thought, what do I do now? You know, you don't, no one really plans to be hunted. So I, you know, I shared these stories uh, and they all turn, I'm still here. There were, you know, some of them were close, but there was, um, there's, you know, the, as I mentioned, death threats, physical threats, uh, certainly a handful of guns. Thankfully, never none have been <laughs> successful at wiping me wiping me You're out. Still here to tell the story. I'm yeah. still I'm still here. I think I had to write this book before someone someone takes me out. Um, I lived a very private life for many many years because I was exposed to a lot of violence. So you know. I had to check into hotels under different names. I would move hotels, you know, and everything. It was secretive. Uh, nobody wanted the dirty laundry aired out. I was under strict confidentiality agreements from every direction. And so I was quite content to just, you know, be a snow leopard and be hidden and live my own private life, only coming out when I needed to help or wanted to help people. But I, uh, I don't know, something changed in me. I just saw the way the world was going and, Certainly, even now, I mean, even me talking to you, sharing these stories, and I'm I'm putting myself out there to show people, you know, stop tearing each other down, you know, stop stop because it's it's just it's too easy to destroy someone's life and a business or a community. It's hard to grow it, and it takes. Yeah, it's easier to hate than to love, isn't it? Right, it takes effort. It takes effort. You have mm. to care. You have to listen, you know, listen, look, feel, and really want to understand the other person or the other world to, to, in order to fix it or improve upon it or help them. So I'm, you know, I'm now um, a public figure <laughs> embarking on this and it's, uh, it's, it's strange to me. It's, it's strange. Fraud, mobsters, attempted suicides, greed, robbery, murder, incompetence, arrogance, cover-ups, even a coup attempt. It's all there. And um, and I will be reading the rest of it, I guarantee you, because you seem like such a fascinating and lovely guy. I've got my dog looking at me now, um, giving me the guilty eyes. We've, we've somehow talked through two and a half hours, and it feels like five minutes. <laughs> no, well, let me let me add, let me add one last thing that Please. something. That, but dude, I'm so doing a part two with you. I'm. There's so- a lot more. This is just <laughs> the, the snapshot of this. These are just the stories of adversity. I want to end on a on a on a brighter note. Just and this is again to to show people that there is hope. You know, there, there is a path. There is a way. No matter where you're starting. So one of the things that I was most proud of. Um, was being invited to Harvard Business School to lecture there wow. and then being w- once I was at Harvard the people s- from MIT saw me and they they were impressed with how I connected with the students 
And you know, I was I was there with a, a, couple, a panel of people, all of them extremely wealthy and m- much older than me. And uh, then I got invited to MIT Sloan School of Management and lectured there. So that happened the same year. I like after I spoke there's after I lost my vision. So I I, I had this. It was it was a fantastic moment for me. Um, not that just that they're storied institutions and well-respected, but I started in business as a part-time childcare worker, law student with zero business experience. I hadn't even taken high school accounting. That's how little interest I had in business. And then here I am at, I think, you know, what I was 35, 36, uh, you know, now being invited to lecture. That's you know amazing. some of the finest minds so that was it, it it was it's it was fun and it it's it, do you think uh, you got to where you were because of passion oh sure passion for what you you found something you love doing I, I like doing a lot of things i think it's tenacity more than passion because <laughs> if you read through the stories you'd say why doesn't this guy just die already <laughs> <laughs> Like when's this my, guy gonna give up? <laughs> some of my friends, some of my friends were convinced I was either in the CIA or I was the, like an actual Terminator. And, you know, I just you know, and then some of my adversaries, I know they prayed that I would just give up. <laughs> you know, wow. but I mean, I would incorporate a few other things, but yeah. um, because you can't just be tenacious, you actually have to learn something. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> you have to actually be at some point be get good at it, whatever yeah. you're trying to do. But uh, if you don't, if you don't have, you look, you have to be brave because if you don't have, if you're not brave you're not going to take that first step. And mm. if you, if you not tenacious, you're going to be, you know, crushed easily. And if you don't have joy, you're just going to be miserable, <laughs> you know, on, in your pursuit. So, you know, you, I, I think you hear it in my voice when I was working in a lot of these awful situations, I would laugh through the day. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of crude humor <laughs> because it literally is graveyard humor because, yeah. you know, you'd blow up, you'd self-combust mm-hmm. if, if you didn't laugh. So there's there's a there's a lot of elements to it, but I'm not done living yet. It just sounds like you're on a very colorful journey. You gravitate towards fascinating roller coasters in your life. Well, that's one way of saying it. it has been such a genuine pleasure to talk to you and as i said i would love to do it again yeah absolutely and and if i ever make it back up to san francisco you're you're there aren't you in san francisco i am my friend yeah i'm right if i make it up i'll 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 let you know but uh, i'm here you know where to find me and if if anyone listening or you have any friends that are in trouble uh, with their company have them call me i'll you know i'll do what i can free of charge and uh, so yeah you're an absolute gent got a gift <sighs> the natural high follow us on twitter at natural high club or go straight to the website thenaturalhighclub.com and remember to subscribe to the natural high podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone